0: So, without another moment wasted, what is what Old Testament book is quoted in the New Testament more than any other? You have a guess? Oh, that hasn't come up yet, so you don't know. Psalms. Psalms. Which old covenant or Old Testament verse is quoted more in the New Testament? Than any other. It's probably not what you're thinking. Psalm 110 verse 1, right? Now you hear that and you're probably going, ah, I have no idea what Psalm 110 verse 1 actually says, right? So I guess you can look it up later. Just joking. I'm going to tell you, okay? I'm not a big meanie. I never liked it when people did that to me. Look it up yourself when you get home. Um, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it's, it's not which verse you quote or you think you should quote most from the Psalms, but that is the verse that the New Testament authors quote more than any other setting up the relationship of Jesus over especially King David. Which Old Testament book did Jesus quote when he was being crucified? You'll never guess. Psalms. Jeez, come on. You're out of practice. Psalm 22 specifically. And why are the the Psalms known as the heart of Scripture? It's not just because of their placement, but it's because, as Martin Franzman said, that theology is doxology and that theology must sing. So it cannot remain mute words inside a book, but it leaps off the printed page, exits the mouth, and fills the air with a holy sound. In the Psalms, we sing with Jesus, and Jesus sings with us in a hymn to the Father through the Spirit amidst a choir of saints and angels. Here are God's words to us and become our words back to God. The Psalms are verbal tears for the suffering, a steady hand for the wavering, a beating heart to the dying. No other biblical book was on the lips of Jesus as he was about to die. Let them be ever on our lips as well, for they are the songs of heaven on earth. They are poetry, They describe experience from within the experience. Lived experiences brought into contact with and breathed on by God Himself. They are full of imagery and metaphor. They are loaded with poetic devices like inclusio and parallelism and quantitative rhythm and dirges, acrostics. They have rhythm, they have movement, and they must be read and experienced differently than narrative or Apocalyptic or gospel or epistle. Scripture is a collection of various genres. They come together to increase its complexity and to deepen its impact. Now, if you want to find the Psalms, you will find them in the center of your Bible. You pretty much halfway, you just crack it open at the center, boom, there's the Psalms, you can get started. The Hebrew scriptures, uh, what we frequently call the Old Testament, call, um, uh, the, the, we would say that they're made up of the law and the prophets. Uh, those are the two big labels that we use to describe that whole section, but they're also in there historical books, and there's a central section known as the writings or wisdom literature, and that collection is includes Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. We, you and I, are whole beings. And so the idea of music and, and poetry being included within the canon of Holy Scripture reminds us that there is more to our existence than just pure logic and, and facts. The Apostle Paul um, he's describing the Christian life to the churches that he's established, and he uses pictures. And one picture is the idea of living in the light and no longer living in the darkness. And in order to live this out, he recommends to his friends in the church in Ephesus that they should be about this, Ephesians 5:19, that they should be speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music, from your heart to the Lord. That is how to live in the light and avoid the darkness. But when, uh, when describing what makes a person unclean, Jesus clarifies that it is not things taken in through the mouth, Matthew 15, 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. So be cautious what comes out of your mouth. Let good things come out of your mouths, perhaps like the Psalms. When Jesus met with and was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he's revealing how life marked by true worship should look. John 4 24. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Psalms are part of what guides us to do that, but to remember that worship is not an event, it's not a song, it's not a ceremony, it's not a service although each of those things might aid you in worship. Worship is a lifestyle of intentionally giving value to someone or something, and everyone does it. Recognizing value and worth in, li- in living it's in such a way that we adjust our preferences, we alter some of our first thoughts to defer to our object of worship. When we run, in earnest pursuit of Jesus, we will regularly need to defer to Him on that path. We say Jesus first, everything else after. We go eyes up again and look at Jesus first so that everything else would be calibrated in our lives after Him and then ordered and prioritized by Him. To aid in personal worship or gathered worship, the people of Israel, they would, they would sing psalms. In the, in the temple, they'd sing them in the synagogue. They, they, on the way to the temple, the they, religious festivals when, when they were offering sacrifices, when they were repenting, when they were pleading, when they were celebrating, when they were celebrating feasts and, and holy days or family gatherings, the psalms were there. The psalms were heavily integrated into the Jewish culture. They learned their beliefs sometimes by singing. And then they sing what they believe back to each other and back to God. And here is the first of those songs. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Two. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Three. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Four. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Five therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Six, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, have you ever heard uh, someone say, hey, there, there are two types of people in the world. Have you ever heard that? People said that to you? They give you a breakdown after that of what those two people what are? So, uh, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who make your life harder and those who make your life easier. There are people who make the bed and people who don't. There are people who arrange the toilet paper roll backwards and those who point it forwards. There's people who, who cut their toast on the diagonal, and there's people who cut it on the vertical. And then there's some poor, sick, twisted people who actually cut it on the horizontal and they just anger everyone else. Uh, people who, who don't clear their email notifications like ever <laughs> and people who keep them cleared. There are people who break off squares of chocolate when eating a chocolate bar and then there are people who, who just bite through the squares. There are people who use bookmarks, and there are people who fold a corner down. There are people who like cats and people who don't. There there are people who are evil and people who are good. And if you've ever heard anyone divide the world into two groups of people, you need to know that they are copying the composer of this first psalm. The entire book of Psalms starts right here, begins by describing two types of people. This is the way it's going to go forward. Two types of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. The righteous person is compared to a, a flourishing tree. Firmly rooted, well-watered, just like a tree. Standing by the waterside. side, oh, we shall not be moved. That's the first song that I ever heard by a band that I just absolutely fell in love with in high school, a band that is so famous that hardly anyone has ever heard of it, but it connected with me. It's the House Martins. I have never forgotten that song, although I could—I ne- never even had a recording of the song, never found it anywhere until just this past week. Just like a tree standing by the waterside, side Oh, we shall not be moved, and for some reason it connected with me so deeply that I've never forgotten it, never been able to listen to it again until now, and as time passed, so many things happened to me, and and, and I watched so many things happen, that line has stayed with me, and I've witnessed the truth sung in this psalm, and I've experienced myself repeatedly in the righteous, just like a tree, standing by the waterside. oh, we shall not be moved, inspired by Psalm 1. Two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked person, on the other hand, they're, they're blown away like chaff. They have no roots. They will not last. They, their time is limited. They cannot flourish. They will be destroyed. And these are frequent themes that come up in Scripture, the comparison between these two things. We see Jesus uh, talking about uh, the good tree and the bad trees and how we could identify them by their fruit. And he also described the, the righteous as traveling the, the, the more difficult, uh, the narrow path, while the wicked are those who take the easy, the wide road to destruction. And all these metaphors, they, they imply a choice. Uh, will you follow the way of the righteous that leads to life or will you be counted among the wicked who will not last? Choice. And when you come across these choices in life, they typically, well, they, they just don't seem as obvious as, as when they're presented in Scripture. They just always seem so clear. But when you're living your life, doing your thing, it just doesn't seem like that. And here again, the choice is, it, it appears obvious. I mean, only a fool Would choose the path leading to destruction, right? Why would anyone want to go to destruction? Why would you choose that? (coughs) So, if it's true, why does Jesus say that so many people fail to make the logical choice? Why do so many people keep choosing the wide road that leads to destruction? Who wants to go to destruction? For, for the most part, we all grew up in the West, for the most part, and, and, and our modern Western bias uh, primarily views people as rational creatures. Uh, rational people will make the right decisions if provided the right information, right? Given the right information, how could anyone not see the right choice? And that frustrates us. We look around and we cannot understand why so many people who, who otherwise seem like normal, decent people would choose horrible, awful things like making a choice different than our choice. Have you ever been faced with this? You ever, do you ever get aggravated by that? You see that and you're frustrated? We, we could see this in, in, in our country right now that there are these opposing views. How could anyone how could anyone? And Psalm 1 helps us with this. The author here reveals that what separates the righteous and the wicked is not their intelligence. It's not their knowledge. It's not their rationality. The righteous person is defined by the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And there's a profound truth here that we can often overlook. We just zip right on by. So hold on Get ready to hear this, okay? This is going to provide you with so much insight and new perspective on yourself and on others. You're going to thank me. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is not what they know, but what they love. Just let that sit there for a second, okay? It's not what they know, but it's what they love. Did you ever think of it like that? In our post-enlightenment context, we exalt the intellect. We assume that knowledge is the necessary ingredient to solve any problem and make every decision. We just, we just need to educate people more, right? We just, we just got to train them or retrain them. If we can just get them into our program, we can train them, we can teach them. And this assumption has deeply shaped secular communities, many communities, and certainly many Christian communities as well, with our, with their emphasis on sermons, Sunday school, Bible studies. Don't get me wrong, those are all good things, okay? But too often, they are built with a false understanding of how human beings work. And we assume that merely teaching God's law will result in people following it, choosing to follow it, choosing to obey His laws, and choosing to obey God Himself. We told you. We taught you. We let you know. While knowledge matters, there is a much more fundamental foundational element that's often looked in. James K.A. Smith, he asked the question this way. He said, what if education wasn't first and foremost about what we know, but about what we love. And the creator of Psalm 1 recognizes that our affections, they determine our choices. And our choices determine our destiny. The heart wants what the heart wants. Have you heard that? It is the heart and not the head that guides so many through this world. It's not a statement about what is right or what is wrong, right? That's a statement about what is actually happening. If you're confused by it, that's why. The heart wants what the heart wants. The righteous is not the person who knows a lot about God, but the one who delights in God. It's relational again. That's what we, it's eyes up on Jesus. On this road trip, we run in earnest pursuit of Christ. We are being brought together into one and we find hope and we find freedom in the love of Jesus. We are drawing closer through a growing faith in Jesus. We don't make faith, but we remain expectant and active and focused on Jesus. It comes back to Jesus it starts with Jesus and it comes back to Jesus he is the beginning he's the middle and he is the end we call him the alpha and the omega he is at the start and he is at the finish he is our high our high priest he is our savior he is our sanctifier he is our healer he is our coming king he is our hope Jesus is our hope. And the idea of relationship shows us that we move better together. We move towards Jesus, yes, but we are at our best when we can move forwards toward Jesus together. Working together and laughing together and crying together and celebrating together, building together. But you've already been together, right? And so you know that relationships also have their tensions. It's not all smooth, season clear, easy sailing. When it comes to following Jesus, we just plain don't always want to do that, do we? I mean, sometimes we believe that we can see the issue more clearly. Uh, Maybe we understand it better, right? Yes, of course we can, (laughs) because I've been here before. I know what I'm doing. I have more experience than you. So going together can be difficult, and sometimes... Other people, you know, sometimes other people can be obstinate, right? Other people. In the darkest part of the night, a ship's captain cautiously piloted his warship through shallow, fog-shrouded waters. And with straining eyes, he scanned through that hazy darkness in front of him, searching for any sign of danger that's lurking just out of sight. Then he saw it. His worst fears were realized when he saw a bright light straight ahead and it appears to be another vessel on a collision course with his ship. So to avert uh, avert disaster, he quickly radioed the the oncoming vessel. This is Captain Jeremiah Smith. Voice crackles across the radio. Please alter your course. Ten degrees to the south. Over. Then to the captain's amazement, the foggy image right in front did not move. Instead, he heard back on the radio, Captain Smith, this is Private Thomas Johnson. Please alter your course 10 degrees north. Over. What? Appalled at the audacity of the message, the the captain shouted back over the radio, Private Johnson, this is Captain Smith, and I order you to immediately alter your course 10 degrees south over. I always go to the south. I don't know why that is. Second time, the oncoming light doesn't budge. With all due respect, Captain Smith, came the private's voice again. I order you to alter your course immediately 10 degrees north over. Angered. Frustrated that this impudent sailor would endanger the lives of his ship, his crew, the captain growls back over the radio, Private Johnson, I can have you court-martialed for this. For the last time, I command you on the authority of the United States government. You alter your course 10 degrees to the south. You do it right now. I am a battleship over that should clear it up. Private's final transmission was chilling. Captain Smith, sir, uh, once again, with all due respect, I, I command you to alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. We can't always have it our way, even when we think we know better because we can't see everything clearly, it is possible that regularly there will be those around us who know better. And God, when He gives directions, does know better. He knows more, and He does see it more clearly. And He does know what is happening, and He does know what will happen. In our lives, when we are faced regularly with choices, So often, there are choices that we don't like. One way leads to life, and the other to destruction. And in those times, what will you trust? Who will you trust? Yourself? I mean, am I I the best bet on getting things right? Let's look back at my history. Have I ever made mistakes before? Isn't it me following my thoughts that got me to the situation in the first place? Am I that reliable? Reliable enough to place my full weight of trust on? Jesus, it is in Him and on Him that we place our full weight of trust, even when that makes us look weird. Do you remember what being weird means? It means not looking, acting, behaving Like everyone else. What everyone else does is normal. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I see that normal is being angry. Normal is selfish. Normal is being in debt. Normal is divorce. Normal is worry. Normal is easy. Normal is just doing what everybody else is already doing. I don't need to think about it. I just do what they do. And we like to fit in. We want to fit in. Being weird seems like a dangerous idea. This is the dilemma that Psalm 1 is talking about. And it's the same dilemma that Jesus points out to us in Matthew chapter 7 starting at verse 13. Verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. 14, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus leads us toward life. small is that gate, and narrow is that road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only the weird find it. Only those who are willing to get off that high-speed people mover and find the road less traveled. It's been said that following Jesus has never been tried and found wanting. Instead, following Jesus or Christianity was found to be hard and left untried. Being weird can change the world one person at a time. Saint Telemachus is a 4th century monk. He lived in a monastery and he felt God calling him to go to Rome and he couldn't figure out why God would want him to go to Rome. But he felt that pressure to go, so he grabs his possessions, throws them in a satchel, puts it over his shoulder, and starts down that dusty road to Rome, to the west. When he got to Rome, uh, he found people were running around. There was, uh, the city was in great confusion, and it turns out that he had appeared on a gladiator fight day. Um, that, the gladiators would, would fight other gladiators they'd also fight wild animals in this big, big uh, building in the amphitheater and so everyone, chaos in the streets was heading towards the Colosseum to watch the entertainment Telemachus thought this might be why God had called him to Rome and so he walks into the Colosseum and he sat down among 80,000 people which is crazy, you've got to think about that for a moment uh, the Rogers Center, the Sky Dome holds about 55,000 Ancient Rome has a building that holds 80,000 people and they're all cheering as the gladiators came out proclaiming, Hail Caesar! We die to the glory of Caesar! The little monk thought to himself, here we are. Four centuries after Christ had been born, he lived and he he taught, he was arrested, he he was convicted, he was killed, he was murdered, he was assassinated, and then he was resurrected. He rose from the dead, and he changed the world, and about 85 years have now passed since Rome had declared Christianity as the national religion. Rome was apparently a very civilized nation, and people are still killing one another for the entertainment of the crowd. Well, this just isn't Christian. Convinced by that, Telemachus got up out of his seat and he goes down the steps, climbs over the wall, walks out into the center of the Colosseum. Who would ever do that? And he stood between two large gladiators and he puts his hands up and he meekly cried out, In the name of Christ, stop! The crowd laughed and they jeered. Haven't seen a freako like this, a weirdo in a while. And one of the gladiators sort of slaps Telemachus away with his sword and sends him off, spinning into the dust. Telemachus got back up. Again, he stood between the two gladiators. Huge, armored, weaponed gladiators and repeated, in the name of Christ, stop. This time, the crowd chanted, run him through, run him through. So one of the gladiators takes up his his sword and he runs it through Telemachus' stomach. He falls to the dust. The sand turns red. The blood runs out of him. And one last time, somehow, Telemachus weakly cried out, In the name of Christ, stop! Something happened. He died on the dirt. The Roman Colosseum. And the crowd grew silent. And within minutes, They all, 80,000 people, emptied out of that amphitheater. And history records that thanks to St. Telemachus, this was the last gladiatorial contest in the history of the Roman Empire. The year is 404. St. Telemachus changed the course of history. So can you. God loves to partner with individuals to make a difference in the world. Sometimes a big difference for another individual. Sometimes a big difference for many people. Because people will regularly, you'll hear this, they'll say, you have no idea how important this was to me. We don't tend to make small differences, we tend to make big differences. And that's what happened through Telemachus, and that's what happened through Jesus, and that might even be what could happen with you. You might be involved in changing history for a single person, for a family, or a group of people. Yeah, maybe even the whole world. Because who knows what God could partner with you to achieve if you continue to earnestly pursue Him, follow the narrow road that few find. Who knows how your life could blossom if your life is like a tree planted by the waterside giving you strength to not be moved. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. you got choices. You have so many choices. Probably so many more choices than you even want. And some of those choices are rational equations. Some choices are discovered by what you love. Choose life. And as you are making those choices, you don't know where you are. That's the time to wait upon the Lord. To trust in Him. In that time, the in-between time. Wait upon the Lord. Kind Father, I thank you for the way that you have worked in my life. I thank you for the way I have seen you work in the lives of so many of these these friends that I have here and that are watching online. And, And I know beyond that, there are so many ways that you have worked that I don't know anything about. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being at work, not just using us, but partnering with us. We don't even know necessarily how big the thing is when we start. So that's why we wait Upon you. I can I can remember that these were the words that that were so important to us as we were thinking and planning into one, dreaming about what might be. And we heard this song that said, wait upon the Lord, and we kind of wanted to do, we kind of wanted to go, we kind of wanted to be about it. And we kept hearing this: wait upon the Lord. And waiting upon the Lord is not doing nothing. Waiting upon the Lord is connecting discovering togetherness. I thank you for our history together, Father. Thank you for the way that you have been working in us and through us. And I pray, I beg that as we start this new season, what I think of so often as a new year, that you would continue to work in and through us. That you would continue to be about uh, project accessibility, which you started, which opening uh, doors and breaking down barriers and opening doors up. And as we, we we saw that originally as just how do we deal with building stuff? We want to renovate. We got to fix this. We've got to make this this this. Facility open to the public. We've got to make it easier for people to get in and to get around in here. And then you told us, you showed us that it was going to be, uh, the building was the start, but it was going to be the way that we would be, the way that we would act, and that we need to continue to find ways to break down barriers and open doors in relationship to welcome people to come and meet, to hear about Jesus. So we ask that you would continue to do that. And as we kind of step forward again, intentionally placing our foot weight of trust upon you. Will you meet us, please? Will you help us deal with all the things that we have got to deal with at the very same time? But everything else that we deal with, it sort of fits into this package of what you were doing in and through us. And so we welcome you to move, we welcome you to speak to us, to bring about conviction, to bring about hope in us that we would continue to run in earnest pursuit of of you and that there would be beneficiaries around us, some of our friends, some of our family, some of those people that we just meet who need to hear and see and be in the presence of uh, of Jesus. May you use us, partner with us to bring hope wherever it is that we go. We come here to be sort of energized so that we can go out and live, that we can be the church wherever we go. We can be your church wherever we go. Living the life that you have directed us into, that is the narrow gate, the road less traveled. That's how we want to run in pursuit of you. Guide us forward, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite you to stand with us. We'll sing one last song this morning.